fishing. And hopefully I haven't run any guys off. I, we're still got a good crowd, so that's great. So let's go ahead and uh, open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, just uh, what a privilege, Lord, once again to come uh, come to your uh, your house, Lord, and be with your people, um, share in fellowship, and just open up the word and explore your nature and just what you've instructed us in, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your truth, for your promises. We just pray that they would become uh, evident to us today and that it would impact uh, the way we walk. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, guys, session number four. And as you can tell by the book you're holding in your hand, we've got a lot of stuff to cover today, all right? So um, this was originally a, a four-week session. It's not going to happen, okay? It's going to take a little longer. So we're going to uh, kind of drive through some stuff today. Uh, next week we have a guest speaker, and then we'll hopefully finish up with the book the following week. And, and that will be a, a push as well. So uh, bear with me as we try to get through this stuff. I don't want to go too fast because it's just rich. I mean, there's so much in here. And once again, for you guys who haven't been in here, Rescuing Ambition okay, by Dave Harvey is what we're kind of going through. Uh, so everything that I present in here is basically uh, out of this book. I encourage you to get it. I know we ordered some. They sold out again. I know there's more ordered. So stay tuned. It should be quickly, coming in quickly. Okay, well, last week uh, we basically talked about Ambition's agenda, Ambition's confidence, and spent a lot of time talking about battling unbelief and really dove pretty into the deep end with faith, what faith is and what it's not. Uh, and really how that impacts our ambition. Today we're kind of going down a new path. That's ambition's path, as you can see from the title of your, your uh, handout. I'm going to start out with a, a little um, kind of a true story that Harvey presents. He, he describes this situation in which, um, well, he really asks the question, what do you think would happen if we took a Grammy award-winning, world-renowned master violinist Okay, one of the best in the world, playing a $3.5 million Stradivarius, okay, playing the most difficult compositions ever arranged. All right, He did it for 40 minutes in a busy metro station in Washington, D.C. Okay, What do you think would happen? And we're talking the best of the best, the best violinist, the best violin, the best music, everything, 40 minutes. Okay, Well, they actually did this. Okay, the Washington Post did a little uh, uh, kind of a feature on this, and this guy named Joshua Bell uh, was this violinist. Now, there's one catch. He didn't dress up in a tuxedo, and there wasn't some you know, grand stage for him. He put blue jeans and a ball cap on, went and sat in that busy metro station and did his thing. All right? And they actually counted how many people passed by. It was about 1,100 people passed by in 40 minutes, a massive amount of people. But what's interesting is how many people actually stopped and listened, okay? And the grand total was seven. Seven people out of 1,100 stopped to see what is arguably the best violin player in the world um, playing incredible music, only seven, okay? And what they coined this as is really a test of people's perceptions and their priorities, right? They don't perceive him as being some world-renowned violinist. He's in blue jeans and a cap. He's in a metro station, right? I mean, they're throwing quarters down at him, whatever. 
there's the perception is all off there, and of course their priority is something else. They're going somewhere. They need to be somewhere. Um, so it's it's really a, a test of people's perceptions of priorities, and it's also a real test of Bell's humility. I mean, you're taking this guy who's used to playing packed houses at you know $500 a ticket type thing, right? And he's playing in a metro station, and no one's stopping to listen. So it really tests his humility. But what this what this story shows us or reminds us of is really the the master in disguise, because we had a similar thing happen with Christ, did we not? Okay, it reminds us of the ultimate test in perception and priority, which is, as we can find in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? And uh, we didn't know it at first, right? I mean, he was right here. Right? And it also reminds us the ultimate test of humility. All right? Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Okay? Um, why don't we turn there real quick? Because we're going to spend a lot of time in Philippians, so we might as well get there. Okay, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Okay, so I'm just going to read this for us, because we're going to break this down a little bit. It says, um, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look at your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So we see really the ultimate example of humility right there. F.B. Meyer called this passage, said it was almost unapproachable in its unexampled majesty and humility. Okay? In other words, there's no greater example of humility uh, than Christ. Okay? And it really points us to perhaps the greatest paradox in history. God Almighty creator of the universe, powerful above everything, in ultimate humility. See the paradox? Okay. And then the Son of God took a path of humility to reach us. All right. So with that kind of background, Harvey's going to walk us through uh, five paradoxes that he's identified. Paradox one, uh, the greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. A paradox, fulfillment, emptiness. How does that work? Okay, so once again, we're going to look at Philippians 2, 3 through 8. And so what is he telling us? What is he telling us in these passages? Well, remember the context. All right, there's disunity in the church. There's selfish ambition going on. All right, um, and then in, in Philippians 2, 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what he's doing, have, have this attitude in yourselves. He's basically calling us to imitate the mind of Christ. Okay? He's showing us Christ's attitude. He's telling us to have this attitude as well. And then in, and in uh, verses 6 through 8, though he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what is Christ's mindset? If we are to imitate his, his thinking, his attitude, what is, what is his mindset? So he shared the rights, honors, and privileges of God, right? He is God. He shared all that. This is co-equal. Jesus didn't selfishly protect his position of prestige, but gave them up, ultimately to die on the cross for our sins. Okay, that was his mindset. Even though he had all those privileges, he put them aside. Um, so how do we apply this? What's the application for us? Well, really, what, what's, uh, what this tells us, we're called to radical humility. Radical humility expressed most clearly in the temporary, voluntary, self-emptying of the Son of God himself. We are to follow his example. So, if we want to find true fulfillment in life, we must follow the path of the Master. Okay, We follow the Savior downward. Okay, Downward. So when we empty ourselves in, um, of personal glory, we won't be empty. That paradox. Okay? We empty ourselves, but we're not empty. We'll learn the fullness of Christ, and our ambitions are rescued in the process. Okay? So that takes us to paradox two. All right. Paradox two. Harvey says it's wrong to think about rights. <laughs> okay? Play on words here. It's wrong to think about right or rights. Our rights, okay? So let's examine kind of, uh, and boy, this is another one of those things, guys, just to warn you, we get beat up every week, and it's, it's not going to be different this week. How do we typically think about our rights, particularly in America, right? I mean, we demand equality, right? We demand equality in our society. You know, that's, that's our right, okay? They got to be protected at all costs. We have to protect our rights. Okay, they're worth fighting for, right? And there's, we've even talked about inalienable rights. According to our Declaration of Independence, we have the Bill of Rights. I mean, our, our country has massive foundations on our rights, does it not? Okay, so we think pretty highly of them. Listen to what Tozer's uh, description of the my rights mentality uh, among Christians. Okay, This is pretty an indictment here. Few sites are more depressing than that of a professed Christian defending his supposed rights, and bitterly resisting any attempt to violate them. Such a Christian has never accepted the way of the cross. The sweet graces of meekness and humility are unknown to him. He grows every day harder and more acrimonious as he defends his reputation, his rights, his ministry against imagined foes. That pretty much sums it up, does it not? We think pretty highly of our rights. Well, let's talk about somebody else's rights. Let's talk about Christ's rights. Okay? No one had greater rights than Jesus. No one. Okay? He was equal with God. Right? He had the right to be worshipped by all of creation. He has the right to full authority and power over all creation. And we could go on and on, but you see the idea. We have this idea of our rights, but you know, look at who really had the true rights, Christ. So with that in mind, what should our mindset be? Okay, does this change the way we think about things? Well, 
Does this mean our rights don't matter and that we shouldn't have any regard for them? No, that's not what it means. You know, rights matter. We, we oppose injustice when we see it. We oppose oppression when we see it. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But what we really want is we want to be known as defenders of the legitimate right of others, of others. Okay, we want to be defenders of the rights of others. We aren't supposed to be known by our ambition to protect our own rights. See the difference? It's me-centered versus other-centered, right? So, and you know, this, this uh, statement really kind of sums it up. The only thing we have a perfect right to is what? Wrath. That's right. So we can go on, you know, arguing for our rights if you want, guys, but that's really the only right we want. So you can keep on fighting for it if you want, but I, I don't want that right. The wrath of God is not something that uh, I think any of us want, okay? So what do we conclude from this? To follow Christ means to see allegiance to him as more significant than any right we hold in this life, okay? Allegiance to him comes first. To be faithful to Christ, we have to give up rights. We really do. Sometimes even to the point of our own lives. Many examples of that throughout history. So, keeping on the theme of ambition, we need to be ambitious to move downward with regards to our rights, do we not? We think highly, way too highly of our rights. Paradox three. It's really something to be nothing. It's really something to be nothing. Let's talk about the great servant, Philippians 2.7. Okay? That he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. Wow, so we see this idea of servant. And literally, it's, it's bond servant. Okay, bond servant that he's referring to. And a bond servant is one who, who voluntarily puts himself in slavery to another. Okay, and I, and I think I have this right, but I, if I remember right, the culture there is, you know, when a, when a servant or a slave was, he did his time and was freed from his master, uh, a lot of the times they would choose to stay on and to continue to be under the authority of that master. And, and I think tradition says that they would literally take them to their doorpost and nail, nail something through their ear to the doorpost as a sign that they're the bondservant. I mean, so it's, it's an interesting picture. Uh, they're actually pierced um, voluntarily to stay under the authority and be the, the slave of that master. That's the picture we see here. Christ emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Listen to uh, Murray Harris. Uh, this is a biblical scholar's description of the bond slave idea in the New Testament. <clears throat> in a fundamental sense, slavery involves the absence of rights. What? Okay. We don't like that, do we? <laughs> so, slavery involves the absence of rights, especially the right to determine the course of one's life and the use of one's energies. What is denied the slave is freedom of, of action and freedom of movement. He cannot do what he wishes or go where he wishes. The faculty of free choice and the power of refusal are denied to him. Okay? That's the picture we're seeing here. So, so Christ took on this bondservant um, form. How do we apply that to ourselves? Let's, let's do a little self-examination. Okay? I've been doing a lot of that the past couple weeks. 
put some questions down there that Harvey presented. They're really uh, thought-provoking. Are we ambitious for slavery? Because we're all slaves. It's just a matter of who's the master, right? If you, if you think you're not a slave, you're wrong, okay? You're either a slave of Satan or you're a slave of Christ. There's no really other, no other option, is there not? I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. So are you ambitious for that? Do we accept that role? Here's a good one. Are you hungry for your own name to be known? Okay, are we after, you know, self-recognition, self-promotion? And do you ever grumble or complain about out of frustration because your progress is being blocked by something or someone else? Okay. Harvey talks about people standing around the water cooler at work. You know, I was just wasn't for so-and-so over here. I'd have had that promotion or... You know, they're holding me back. Uh, you know, I deserve this, right? Do we ever have that kind of mentality? Okay. And another great one. Can you truly adopt the vision or promote or pursue someone else's vision and dreams? Can we do that? Can we put aside our own so-called vision and aspirations and adopt someone else's and support it? Can we be ambitious for someone else's agenda? The way he summarizes it. Great question. Okay. Our willingness to make others a success is a great measure of the purity of our ambitions. It really um, kind of uncovers our motives okay, and the purity of our ambitions. Look closely at Philippians 2.3. We're still in that same uh, area of scripture here. <clears throat> says, do nothing for selfish or empty conceit. Okay, and a lot of times that can be, um, you can stick in rivalry in there. Rivalry and conceit kind of go together. Okay, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So there's this whole concept of looking at someone else's as more important, looking at their agenda as more important, looking at their, you know, what they're trying to, what they're trying to do. Okay. Um, and you look at the word rivalry and conceit <clears throat> in these passages, and that really translates to something we're familiar with, selfish ambition. Here we go again. It's that same concept, selfish ambition. We're instructed to do nothing. We're to do nothing to compare or usurp others, particularly those over us. Okay? We have authorities placed over us in all different settings of life, whether it's in our workplace, in our home, in our church, etc. We're doing nothing. We're, we're to do nothing um, uh, to violate that. Okay. So this concept of rivalry, rivalry is what happens when ambitions swell with envy. Envy. So someone else is enjoying what we want for ourselves. We want that. We begrudge them, and we charge God with inequity. We accuse him, okay? and it has devastating effects. So rivalry um, splits churches. Okay, it undermines testimonies, uh, it breaks friendships, and it really makes us look no different than the world around us. Okay, so as Christians, we need to be thinking about this, uh, this concept of rivalry. We need to be looking towards humility, okay? Because there's the opposite. Humility counts others more significant than ourselves. Okay? Humility looks out for the interest of others first. Okay? Harvey puts it this way. It's, it's hard to be envious of others' interests 
when we're actually looking out for them. You can't do both, right? You can't do both. So that's what we need to be doing. We need to be looking out for others' interests. That kind of um, uh, suffocates envy. And another great statement here. Humility sees in servanthood, okay? Humility sees in servanthood the pathway towards liberation. It's actually liberating when we look after the the well-being of others, when we're pursuing what's best for them and not ourselves, okay? So what are some helpful, helpful reminders? This all sounds wonderful, but how do we do this? Uh, well, Harvey really gives us some great uh, kind of um, practical uh, things to think about when we're, when we're battling uh, rivalry or conceit and envy, okay? First off, we're called to follow Christ's example. He shows us how it's done, all right? Um, let's think about what he did. He came to those who were enemies of God, okay? So it's not like he came to a bunch of friends here. Um, who were enemies of God, okay? Those who denied him. He came to those who denied him. Okay? He served. He loved those who denied him. They loved him. He served those who rejected him. Okay? And he died for those hostile toward him. Wow. So what an example. Okay? Another good one. Never underestimate the unique work that God does in our lives by placing us under unthinking and unscrupulous people. You are there for a reason, right? So, you know, we can have the attitude of, I can't, I don't know why God has put me in this situation, um, you know, put me in this job with this supervisor, put me, you know, I have to be around this person under the authority of this person. Well, God's in charge of all that, is he not? Okay, so we need to be thinking about um, possibly why we're there, what he's doing with our ambition. Proverbs 21.1, this is a great thing to remember, okay? What's that say? Well, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Okay, you can certainly apply that to others besides just kings. You can apply that to people that are in high authority, maybe over us. Okay, the Lord's going to do with them what he wants to do. We're called uh, to understand that we've been placed in that position, and we're just... We're to be obedient. We're to be uh, have that servant mentality because we don't know what he's doing. Okay? Another reminder, <clears throat> few things root out self-love more than the daily drill of serving others who seem to delight in treating you like a slave. <laughs> okay, that really kind of uncovers some stuff, does it not? Great advice. Building on that concept, uh, God intentionally creates opportunities where we must serve others because it rescues our ambitions and forces us, or forces Him to the center, right? Forces Him to the center. And, and lastly, here, well, not lastly, but living for the success of others, not our own, but for others, is a wonderful gospel aroma that pleases God. Love the way he puts that. It's a pleasing aroma to God when we serve others. Matthew 23, verses 11 through 12. What's it tell us? It says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant, right? Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, 
And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the perfect picture of what we're talking about here. Okay? A servant is a wonderful aroma to God. So rescued ambition no longer clamors to be first or best. Talked about that a few weeks ago. Our desire to be the best, to be first okay, at everything. Rescued ambition no longer has that as its goal. It's happy with comparative nothingness. The comparative nothingness of slavery or second best. If that's what, and here's the kicker, okay? If, if that's what brings the most glory to God, that's a big if, okay? Because we've talked about this before. It's not that we're not supposed to strive for excellence. It's not that we're, we're not supposed to be the best that we can be where God put us. That, obviously, we need to do that. But it's for whose glory? Okay? It's not for our own glory. It's for his glory. And sometimes what's best for his glory is that we be second. Okay? And that we serve others. That we serve somebody else's agenda. Okay? So we need to keep that in mind. So the conclusion here is it's really something to become nothing if it's for God's glory. Fascinating. Paradox four. Okay, another examination part here. So when it comes to self-evaluation, which we need to be doing, don't trust what you see. Okay? When it comes to self-evaluation, don't trust what you see. That is a paradox because if we're doing it ourselves and and we can't trust it, how does that work? Okay? So let's talk about that. So... Uh, does this mean that, um, you know, does putting others first mean that we're called to stop thinking about ourselves altogether? So we, we just totally disregard any thought about ourselves whatsoever? Well, no, it doesn't. In fact, that's kind of impossible, okay? Because if we're, if we're counting others as more significant than ourselves, that assumes that at some point we have to give thought to ourselves, right? I mean, you have to. So, I mean, we're going to have to examine ourselves and give thought to ourselves. What does Romans 12, 3 say about thinking of ourselves? <clears throat> Romans 12, 3. Read it for you here. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allocated to each a measure of faith. So don't, don't think too highly of ourselves, right, to sum that up. Okay, so self-awareness is a reality. Okay, we can't, we can't get away from that. We're going to be aware of ourselves and think about ourselves. Okay, but the key, the key is a self-awareness based in humility. Humility. Seeing ourselves with both faith and sober judgment, okay, is what the, the text tells us. Uh, we need, we need somebody we need to count others more than ourselves, okay? <clears throat> Forming a humble self-perception. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we need the eyes and words of others to help us form a humble self-perception. We can't, we need help. All right, we'll, we'll kind of walk that out for you a little bit. I guess a good example is... Um, you know, when we look in the mirror, what do we see? If we're self-examining ourselves, we walk up and we look in the mirror. What do we see? 
we see the whole person. We see the backside, the side, what's inside. We see just the front, maybe even from the waist up, depending on the size of the mirror. Okay, so when we look in the mirror, we have a limited, a somewhat limited view of, of what's reality. All right, um, and you know, quite frankly, we're poor at self arithmetic. Okay, when we're counting others and ourselves, we always count ourselves wrong. That's just human nature. I mean, we're we're, we're hardwired that way, unfortunately. Okay, we're really we're really bad at self arithmetic. Um, so when we look in the mirror, we see only the front. We need somebody to come in and look at all the different angles. We need others to help us with that. God has designed us so that we need each other to get a complete picture of who we are. Okay? Humility looks for mirrors. That's part of being humble is looking for mirrors. Uh, the humble seek the input of others with the right motive, of course. Okay? We, we need others to examine us. We need honest uh, assessment of where we're at. Right? Let's, let's talk about mirrors a little bit. Harvey points out some really uh, good benefits of, of mirrors. All right? Mirrors help with motives. Okay? Another convicting part here. So we need help looking at our motives and examining our motives. You know, it's easy. It's really easy to hide selfish motivations in service to others. Is it not? We can, you know, we can be serving in the church, to an you know to an infinite degree, but have underlying self self uh, motives there, right? Real easy to hide in that. And, and service can be tailor made for cloaking selfish ambition. So the remedy for this is we need to start asking ourselves why. Okay, we don't mind when somebody comes up and says, "Hey, what you doing? What are you doing?" It's pretty easy. I'm doing this. So it's a much different story when they come and come up and say. Why are you doing that? Okay, so we need to be asking that ourselves. Why? What is my motive? And not only asking that of ourselves, we need to ask others to ask us why. Okay, we need that accountability. Um, you know, so a, a good question to ask ourselves: is, is there anyone in your life that has um, the freedom to ask you why? Maybe you have somebody. If not, find one, find somebody. We need somebody in our life who can come up and freely um, ask why. And then we also need to, to be real careful on how we respond to that question. If we're giving them the freedom to do it, we need to know that they have our best interest in mind and be very careful on how, to respond, how we respond to that. So be open to it, invite it, invite it. Okay, so mirrors help with motives. They also help with gifts. Gifts. Harvey talks about, now we, we know that, that Christians have gifts, right? And they can be numerous. And sometimes it's a combination of gifts, okay? That's part of the church body is a compilation of gifts, serving one another. But wherever there's gifts, there is a limit. There are limits, all right? Um, we discover and refine gifts in community, the church. That's where we often discover our gifts, that's where we, where we refine them, in the church, in the, in the church community. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 21. Familiar passage. Basically, just says, um, this is Paul speaking. He says, hey, the, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the, to the feet, I have no need of you. 
Okay? We need each other. We all have certain gifts that complement one another. Dan did an excellent series on this a while back ago, if you guys remembered, on gifts and um, you know how that works. But um, We need mirrors to function fruitfully Our gifts are to bear fruit, are they not? Having a mirror to, to help us uh, refine our gifts and know what the limits of those gifts are really help produce more fruit. Okay. You know, I think we, we, we can often look at um, the kind of way our church structure is with the elders. That's a, that's a protection for us. You know, you're thought quite often where people feel like they're gifted in an area and they're really confident and they think they have no limits, but in fact, they need an objective uh, assessor in that area because they may not be as gifted in that area as they think. They may really like that area of service, but they're not as gifted as they think. So we need we need that checks and balances, okay? And, you know, that's what the church helps us do. Um, grace never comes to the proud. It never comes to the proud. We need to be eager to ask for the help of others in knowing what our gifts are and how we might serve the church best through them. We need mirrors to help us with our gifts. Okay? You may not know what your gifts are. Well, you know, I, I know that the advice Dan gave in that area is, well, just start, just start doing. Okay? Start meeting needs and start doing. Your gifts will come to the surface. Other people will recognize them. Okay? They'll say, man, you know, I, I, I've noticed you really... You really have a gift in that area. You're really uh, you know, blessing a lot of people doing this type of thing. So in our involvement in the church and serving others, a lot of times the gifts will rise to the top. They'll become evident, hopefully to ourselves, but even more important to others, and you'll get that affirmation. Or the opposite. You know, that's really not the area you probably need to be serving the church in. Right? There's others who can do it better. There's others who can do it better. That's painful sometimes, but that's part of being in community. Um, and that kind of goes hand in hand with mirrors help us with fruit, what we just talked about, okay? Um, rescuing ambition includes evaluating how our efforts are bearing fruit, okay? Um, John fifteen eight says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So it's obviously important to evaluate our effectiveness in bearing fruit. I mean, look at that verse. Okay, You are to bear much fruit as so prove to be my disciples. It's an important issue. Fruit's important. So we need to look at it. Um, we're ambitious. We are very, very ambitious to start things, but often hate to end them. What does that mean? Okay. Um, let's say that we have a wonderful idea for a new ministry or some new strategy um, um, and we put that into place and it looks wonderful and, um, and we go out at 100 miles an hour but we get down the road a little bit and ain't much fruit there from that you know all that effort we put forth that wonderful idea just doesn't seem to be doing anything at all it's not bearing any fruit sometimes we have a really hard time ending do we not? We hold on to that, that monument. We make a monument of it, okay? So that method or that strategy that, that we came up with or we employed becomes, becomes a monument. Okay? Um, that needs to be recognized. 
so the assumption here is, is you know, we often assume that was a that what was effective at one time will and should be effective all the time. Okay, sometimes things change. Okay, one of the reasons probably the elders get together every year. They look at the church, what they're doing. Um, you know, they look at the fruit, what's been going on, uh, where have we done really well, what things are we doing that are bearing much fruit, what things are going on that aren't bearing much fruit. It's that good evaluation of the fruit that, that helps us, really. Okay, and we have to be able to let go of uh, things that aren't producing fruit. <clears throat> Biblical example, great example. You guys recall um, the, 12 apostle, the 12 apostles uh, when they were attempting to take care of the widows in the church. Remember that whole scenario? The church was growing, uh, and obviously taking care of widows is a, a huge deal in the church, okay? You need to take care of the widows. And it became uh, overwhelming to them uh, to such a degree that they were beginning to neglect uh, the greater fruitfulness of preaching God's word, okay? So they had a plan in place for, for serving the widows, but it was becoming less effective because it, it was growing so much. It was growing so much. And so they had to evaluate that situation. Right? They couldn't just keep going on doing what they've been doing because not only would the widows have suffered, their preaching of the word would suffer. Everything goes down, right? So what did they do? Um, what did they do? They delegated out, right? Okay, they, had, they came up with a new strategy for taking care of the widows. Okay, they had others do that. And what did that do? That produced great growth in the church. They were still able to preach the word. The widows got served. Wonderful. A new strategy. They examined the fruit, made adjustments. They weren't, they weren't holding on to the old way of doing things. So a good mirror asks unpopular questions about fruit in every season. Right? It's important for knowing whether we should continue or change what we're doing. Okay, both on a personal level and as a, at the church level. And by doing this, it helps to protect us from two dangerous extremes of ambition. Okay, we have that one extreme where we're building monuments to our abilities that we just talked about a minute ago, where we, we get stuck onto something, we, we started something, um, and we just hold on to it. That's our monument. Okay? And then you have the other danger of just flaming out and wasted energy. We keep pressing forward, pressing forward, trying to make this work, or we, we burn out. Okay? So mirrors help avoiding those two uh, those. Uh, dangerous extremes. So in summary, we need the mirrors to help us see our fruit, see our gift, and see our motives. Okay, and that's a crucial part in the rescue of our ambition. Okay. Paradox 5. We've got to pick the pace up, guys. Okay, true humility protects or promotes great ambition. True humility promotes great ambition. Uh, once again, let's look at Christ. Christ's humility is, is displayed in his action. Okay? His, his humility is best displayed in his actions. Go back and look at Philippians 2, 7, to 8, 7 through 8. What did he do? He made himself nothing. That's action, right? He took the form of a servant. That's his action. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Action. So he demonstrates humility in his actions. Okay? Christ's humility didn't restrain his actions, did they? They didn't restrain them. It defined them. That's real important for us to understand. We, we mentioned this earlier. 
listen, humility doesn't, doesn't stifle ambition. It doesn't. It's very dangerous. It gives us a guideline. It puts rails on it. Okay? We are, we're called to follow this example. In Titus 2.14, it says to be zealous for good works. I love that word, zealous. Okay? We're, we're not supposed to be sitting back passively. and um, you know, We're supposed to be going after these things. When we, when we become too humble to aspire, we've stopped being humble. That is true humility, true humility. Okay? Humility should never be an excuse for inactivity. Right? It's, it's, you know, talking about dreams for God isn't, isn't pride. Okay? It's essential. It's essential. Listen to John Stott. This is great. He says, ambitions for self may be quite modest. Okay? Ambitions for self may be quite modest. Ambitions for God, however, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. How can you have modest ambitions for God, right? There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? No, once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with the glory and honor and accorded his true and accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere. You see that picture? Okay. To allow passivity is to cut out the very heart of humility. Love that by uh, Harvey. Okay. Passivity cuts out the very heart of humility. Because remember, humility, what does humility produce? Okay. Humility is actually empowering, okay? Um, when we cut out the heart of humility, it leaves le- devoid of power and grace that God promises to the humble. Okay? He promises power and grace to the humble. Okay? So by not doing anything, you're basically saying there was no power in that. It was crippling. It wasn't empowering at all. It's a contradiction, okay? Okay. Moving right along here. Um, next section, ambitions, contentment, the next chapter in uh, Harvey's book. Now, originally, I wasn't going to do this chapter. Brent spoke, gosh, four to six weeks on contentment. Great, great discussion on contentment. But uh, I couldn't leave it out. All right, it was too good. Um, so at the very least, I had to pull out some highlights of Harvey's chapter on ambitions, contentment, because, you know, we can't hear this enough maybe come out from a different angle or two. So listen to the Thomas Watson, the English Puritan. Uh, and this, is, this statement is going to kind of build the foundation for our discussion here in the next few minutes. It says, if we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. Okay? Classic Puritan statement there. So it brings out a problem. We have not what we desire. Okay? This is getting to the heart of contentment. We have not what we desire. That's our problem. So when God acts contrary to our will, okay, when he doesn't do what we want, disappointment. It's understandable. It, it's, you know, and it's okay to be disappointed when things don't turn out the way we want. That's not necessarily sinful to be disappointed. Okay, but when our desires go unfulfilled and disappointment begins to define us, if you're living in a constant state of disappointment, well, that's discontentment. Okay, that means it's alive and well in us. There's a difference. Okay, 
We can't be in that constant state of disappointment. Worded differently, when selfish ambitions are unsatisfied, we grow discontent. That's the reality here, all right? And discontentment is a sign that our ambitions aren't godly ambitions. They're selfish ambitions. We talked about that earlier when ambitions were denied. I think it was last week or the week before. Sometimes he denies our ambitions because they're not godly ambitions. They need to be exposed for what they are, selfish ambitions. And to sum it up, at the heart of discontentment lies the conviction. Here's the conviction. I don't have what I deserve. Isn't that what we're saying when we're discontent? I don't have what I deserve. Give me this. Well, what's the solution? Well, the solution is we need to understand that we have more than we deserve. As the Puritan said, right? We have not what we desire. We have more than we deserve. All right? Contentment means being satisfied at a peace and at peace with God's will in all situations. At peace in all situations. No better example of that than Paul, right? He lays that out in Philippians 4, uh, 11 through 13. All right? Um, and might as well turn there, okay? Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says, <clears throat> Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay? All right, so one of the things we see here is there's this constant, uh, what, we, what we label here, contentment's tension. Okay, there's this tension that we see in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, okay, if we look at that, Philippians 3, 13 through 14, it says here, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press onward toward the goal, right? So you, you get this principle of we need to hunger for more, press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, move forward, move forward, press, 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 right? So that's one side of the coin. But then you got this tension with Philippians 4.11. In whatever situation I am, be content. Be happy with where you are. How does that work? We're told to be happy where we're at, but then at the same time, press forward. Okay, which is, which is it? Well, it's both. It's both, right? Um, contentment is what happens when godly ambition, godly ambition triumphs over selfish ambition. Okay? Here's the secret to Paul's contentment. And it's a secret to our contentment as well. Since Paul's ambitions were not selfish, he could live with them unfulfilled. Okay? They're God's ambitions. They're not Paul's ambitions. Okay? If it's God-focused. It's not Paul-focused. So if they're left unsatisfied, that's God's business. It's his, it's his agenda. Do you see how that can create contentment? When it's, if it's selfish ambition, we're going to get pretty upset about it. It's what we want. But when it's God, it's up to him. And if he doesn't fulfill it, okay, that's fine. Right? So where there is godly ambition, we can be at peace with whatever comes our way. And there's the secret. Okay. Now, 
the other principle here that we see um, is that contentment is, to some degree, it's learned. It's not just born with contentment. Okay, boom, you were content. Okay? It's learned, and we see that in 4.11. Philippians 4.11, it says, For I have learned, this is Paul talk, and I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So you get this idea, this is a, this is a growth issue here, and he's, it's, it's been a process for him. Okay? Contentment is something acquired. It's acquired when faith, we talked about faith a lot last week, when faith is applied over time in those we have not what we desire seasons of life. Okay? We're not getting what we want. We need to implement some faith, trust in the promises of God. Okay? And that's how we learn contentment. Contentment also has a test. Okay? There's two tests that Harvey talks about here. We have the test of prosperity. Okay? It's the one side that Paul talks about, times of prosper. Okay, when there's plenty. Um, the test of prosperity, abounding wisely and biblically, is harder than it appears. With great blessing comes unexpected temptation. Okay, so quite often when we are being blessed with plenty, there's a temptation that goes along with it. Listen to Spurgeon here. The Christian far often disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. Okay? That's quite often when we mess it up. Proverbs 27, 21, this is great. Okay? And this is uh, Solomon's test of uh, praise, is what this has been coined. It says, the crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, that refining process, right? So the crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. So there's our crucible. How do we respond to praise? So the temptation here is praise has a way of inflaming desires and tends to surface the heart's impurity. You get that picture of, um, you know, refining the silver, right? Praise can often refine us, how we respond to it. It brings to the surface um, some of those um, uh, inflaming ungodly desires. When praise meets godly ambitions, it inspires gratitude toward God. Okay? When you receive praise, and it can be in a lot of different forms. Praise can be someone coming up and saying, hey, man, that, I just love what you're doing, etc." It can be a promotion at work. It can be a raise at work. It can be a, an award you're given. It can be anything. Right? Praise comes in a lot of different forms. How do we respond to that? Okay? Well, the, the appropriate response is we recognize God as the source and power of our performance. Because remember, we did it for his glory in the first place. It's his agenda. Okay? It's his agenda. He's the one who gave me the power to do it. He gets the glory. I'm just, I'm just the vessel here. Okay? That's the appropriate response. But when praise meets selfish ambitions, what, do, what does it look like? Well, we tend to keep that praise to ourselves. We can't afford it, do we not? Yeah. And, and here's the, the effect that has. Not only do we hoard it, but then it, it creates this um, uh, desire for more. I need more. I need more of it. Okay. Uh, praise makes us hungry for more praise, which stirs discontentment. We can't get enough of it. Right? 
So what's the other half of that? So we talked about the test of, of uh, prosperity. There is a test with, of adversity. And I'm going to just breeze over this really quickly. Um, Harvey has a, a nice little section on this talking about just you know, the adversity of life. And uh, he, he coins it this way. He says, real, real life rarely knocks. You know, this picture of knocking on the door. And says, no, nah, it just breaks down the door itching for someone to level. Life's tough, man. It just comes in and pounds us sometimes. All right? Adversity. Um, a quote by Packer here said, the world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able to at all times to succeed in measurable ways, and that it is a great disgrace not to, hangs over the Christian community. Okay, Somehow we get this idea that everything's supposed to be great and we're supposed to be always you know, having just success and delight and plenty and everything. That's, that's ludicrous. Okay, And... Um, we see that in the Christian community often. We don't sometimes accept the fact that adversity is part of life. And there are times when we, we really have to kind of follow John the Baptist lead. It says, I must decrease. You know, when we're in those situations where it's not about you being the best, it's about you being second, looking after someone else's interests, sometimes we have to say, you know what, I, I need to decrease, they need to increase. Okay. Um, other times we just need to learn to be brought low. And adversity will often do that. It has a humbling effect. Okay. okay. Contentment source. We're going to kick it up a few notches here, guys. Philippians 4.13, once again. What is the source of contentment? Well, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay. The strength to do all things and be satisfied at all times comes from the Savior. We know that. Okay. The strength to do all things and be satisfied, that's the key. It's not just strength of doing something. It's, it's to be satisfied no matter what your state is. That comes from the Savior. We live infinitely above what we really deserve. Okay, Here's the real source for contentment, to understand that we live infinitely above what we deserve. You know, we like to say, or, or we talked about this a minute ago, I don't have what I deserve. That's the root of discontentment, is it not? You know what? You're absolutely right. You don't have what you deserve. Thank God for it, right? We don't have what we deserve. <laughs> the gospel reminds us that regardless of our state, we live infinitely above what we really deserve, which is the wrath of God. Okay? We don't want what we deserve. There's another model, and hey, I, I've been guilty of this. This really convicted me. It says sometimes we look at contentment as just a matter of, well, it could be worse. You know, we look at someone else's situation, and we say, man, you know what? I, I got no problems. Okay, just look at that. I could be like that guy. Harvey talks about, you know, this, this homeless guy um, and this other guy who's prosperous and he's not content, but he sees the homeless guy and says, well, you know, at least I'm not like that. So I, I'm, I, I should be pretty content. You know, I, I can remember a time in my life where I did the same thing. We had some friends. This was years ago back in, in Florida. That, uh, friends of ours who lost a, an infant to leukemia. And I could just remember telling myself, you know what, I got no problems. Just, just with that. I mean, what am I, how can I not be content? Who could they deal with? Okay, and it's very easy for us to do that. Um, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Godly contentment has to be more than being thankful you're better off than someone else. Okay, why? It doesn't produce contentment. Why? If our contentment is based on comparing our state to others, then our contentment is situational. 
what happens if you're the one who all of a sudden is the person someone else is looking at and I'm not like him? Well, are we just supposed to be content only in the good times when things are going well? No. We're supposed to have contentment all the time. So if it's just based on situation where you're standing relative to somebody else, that's not going to get it done. It's not going to produce contentment. In fact, it's almost a guarantee that you're not going to be content because we're going to be faced with trials. You know, there are going to be times when we're, we're brought low. We're, we're in the valley, right? So we can't have it, we can't have our contentment based on our position or where we're at. Right? True contentment comes by comparing what we have to what our sins deserve. Now, there we go. Now, there's something we can compare with. We need to remember our previous state. What is our previous state? Well, let's think about this. We were spiritually wretched. We were lost. We were miserable. We were broken and destitute before God. That was our state, was it not? We need to remember that. And we stood powerless to alter our circumstances. There's nothing we could do about it. Powerless. We're still, we didn't even want to be altered. We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't want anything else. We liked it. Okay? And we were hostile toward help and to God. We didn't need any help. We were hostile towards it. Didn't want any part of it. And basically, our life was hopeless. And our end was eternal torment. So that describes our previous state. And it's not a pretty picture. But then let's look at God's mercy. Okay? God came to us in the person of Christ. He completed that great transaction that we talked about. Paid for our sins, zeroed out our account, and then put a huge deposit in our account. Okay? Righteousness. To summarize it, we deserve hell and we got heaven. That's a pretty good deal for us. So do you have all do you have all you desire? It's a great question. I don't. <laughs> okay. But we have more than we deserve. Think about that. All right. Okay. A couple quick key things. Um, contentment's daily practice. Uh, remember that Paul said he learned to be content, so it's a process. No one's going to be perfect at it. Okay, take that into mind. We aren't hardwired for contentment. We have to be ambitious for it. We have to practice contentment daily. Okay, we, we can meditate on things above. Okay, and in those two uh, verses there, Colossians 3, 1 to 2, and Romans 12, 2, it, it really gives you the sense that the battle is fought in our mind. Okay, it's fought in our mind. So we need to be meditating on things from above. We need to be memorizing scripture. We need to be remember that we have God's love. No matter what our situation, we have his love. We need to remember the gospel is the highest truth that we can ponder. You know, if you're really in a, a bad spot, ponder on the gospel. Some of the things we just talked about, man, that'll change your attitude in a hurry. It's got to, right? Practice gratitude. Thank God for the little things. You know, I mean, yeah, we, we're probably pretty good about thanking him for those big things in our life, you know, our spouse, our children. Our children's salvation. I mean, just big things, right? But do we thank Him for the little things during the day? Make that a practice. It's amazing how that'll change your mindset. Thank Him for all the little things during the day, okay? However small they may seem. Move high by reaching low. God's career path for greatness is a descending one, okay? We're to, we're to go down. We're to go low. Humility, okay? Luke 4, uh, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Contentment comes as we satisfy the fierce ambition to move higher by reaching lower. 
we are filled as we choose to empty. Okay, that paradox again. So how do we do that? Well, confessing our sins and our weaknesses. Okay, being open to examination by others, getting mirrors. We talked about that, right? Staying focused on our need for grace. We need to ponder in those things. That's reaching low, staying humble. Close you, and you guys have this in front of you. I thought this was great. Um, set your sights beyond contentment. It's not just contentment. Okay, listen to Sinclair Ferguson. I love Sinclair Ferguson. He's incredible in how he words things. So Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. What more could be truly desired, could we truly desire? Great question. We are way out of time. Uh, Next session's in two weeks. What's coming up? Ambitious failure. Good stuff. Ambitious for the church. Ambitious risk, probably my favorite chapter in the book. And then ambition paid forward. So we're going to be covering a lot of information. So let's uh, close in prayer and we'll get to church. Father, just uh, thank you so much for uh, these principles that have been outlined or outlined today, Lord. We just thank you that um, um, your promises are true, Lord, and that we can find true contentment in service, uh, ranking ourselves under others, Lord, putting others uh, above ourselves. Thank you for pointing that out. We thank you for the, the example that you've given us in Paul and in Christ. And we just ask that it, um, it, it, it uh, be on our hearts as we leave here today, as we go out and, and live in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Sorry to keep you all so late. Sorry. Um